the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. We're going to talk this afternoon with Dr. Jay Richards. He's the co-author of The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. If you have questions about how government has approached the uh, the lockdown, how they've approached uh, quarantine and COVID-19 in general, this is the book to read. Uh, it answers so many of the questions that many of us have had and explains how we arrived at this pass and whether or not it's actually working. He'll be joining us at about uh, a half past the four o'clock hour and into the five o'clock hour. We have him for a full hour, Dr. Jay Richards, co-author of The Price of Panic. Um, also, I want to uh, let you know I'm going to be sharing um, a piece from Dr. Uh, Daryl Bach. Uh, I'm a part of Bible Study Fellowship, and he shared a, a content of a blog post he had recently on how to test ourselves in this challenging time as believers and whether or not we're actually living up to Christ's call to unity. So I'm looking forward to sharing that with you in the latter part of the program as well. Well, Oregon set new coronavirus records yet again on Wednesday as average daily cases and active hospitalizations reached new highs. That's according to the Oregon Health Authority. They reported four deaths, 597 new cases on Wednesday. That pushes the state's daily average for the past week to a record 546 confirmed or presumed infections, and that's an important distinction. The 597 cases are the second highest tally on record, trailing only the 600 reported in the last day of October. Oregon has now recorded at least 500 cases in six of the past seven days. As a result of Oregon's unprecedented run, average daily cases are now up 67% from two weeks ago. Now, understanding that and putting it into context uh, will be important when uh, we have a conversation with Jay Richards on the the book on the price of panic. The Oregon Health Authority announced that 26 new coronavirus cases at public and private schools offering in-person instruction last week. Some 50,000 Oregon students are attending classes in person. Only one new case was detected in a Portland area public school. Well, of the new cases, 12 were among students and 14 among employees. Five of those infected, three of them students, two of them staff were at schools that appeared in previous agency counts of school coronavirus cases. So not much of a surprise there. Although the latest release detailed 26 new cases on Wednesday. Only 14 of them originated last week. The largest single outbreak was tied to the Wallawa School District's 100-student high school, where the uh, three students and one staffer tested positive for coronavirus. Those cases were confirmed on the 30th of October. The Health Authority also reported three cases tried to Morrow County a junior high school there, one of them a student, two employees. Those cases were confirmed earlier in October. North Bend High School recorded three newly confirmed infections that were originally reported to Coos County health officials on the 18th of October, all of them staffers. Every other school in the health agency's update reported one or two new cases. So these are being reported now, but they're not uh, fresh, if you will. 
Well, Governor Kate Brown activated the Oregon National Guard to help police protest in uh, Portland early Wednesday evening after some demonstrators smashed windows of downtown businesses. Well, the damage by a small group of protesters also spurred the Joint Law Enforcement Command authorized by the governor to declare that gathering a riot. Dozens of state troopers responded and ordered people to leave. Officers said they arrested at least 11 people, including one person originally accused of throwing a Molotov cocktail toward police, though the device was later determined to be a firework. Police said they also seized a rifle, ammunition, a knife, hammers, and other fireworks from some people arrested. Yet, as police and protesters clashed in one part of downtown, A peaceful protest for racial justice took place several blocks away. The demonstrations collectively attracted a few hundred people as the nation awaited the presidential election results. Well, Governor Brown had said that she might send the Oregon National Guard members to respond to potential unrest after the election. Officials said the Guard would help in support roles such as processing arrests, blocking traffic, and so on. Several Humvees carrying National Guard members arrived in downtown after 8 p.m. Later, several National Guard members holding wooden batons stood among frontline riot police, forcing protesters to move. Oregon National Guard members are civilian community members. They help to protect us. That's what the statement from the governor's joint command said. We don't take this decision lightly. Well, the statement said the Oregon National Guard would help keep the community safe and that members are trained in crowd control. They'll wear military uniforms and work beside police. The governor's decision came hours after she extended her order, giving control of policing protests to a joint law enforcement command led by Oregon State Police and Multnomah County Sheriff's Office. Demonstrations began at two separate points, one in northwest Portland, the other in southeast, but both began as rallies and evolved into marches as the sun set. The northwest Portland gathering held in the North Park blocks downtown was billed as the first in a post-election week of action. About 200 people started marching from the park around 520 p.m. At the same time, a similarly sized uh, march west across the Morrison Bridge toward the downtown waterfront. People carried signs that simply said, count every vote. Uh, By 545, both marches had reached Southwest NATO uh, Parkway. The two groups converged beneath the Burnside Bridge, but they did split one peaceful, the other not so much. Uh, But at least the governor has uh, made the decision that she's not going to tolerate the violence that she has tolerated for 100 plus days. She did issue a statement on keeping the peace in Portland, saying this. Two groups gathered in downtown Portland last night. One group demonstrated peacefully for hours by the waterfront. Their clarion call advocating for racial justice and black lives has resonated with Oregonians and driven real reform over the past several months. Unfortunately, a second group of self-styled anarchist protesters, some armed, also marched downtown last night with no discernible goal other than to cause violence and vandalism. They shattered the windows of a church that feeds Oregonians in need, a woman-owned and operated business that ra- business rather that raises money for immigrant uh, and women's rights and many other storefronts. Indiscriminate destruction solves nothing, the government went on to say. These are acts of privilege. At the request of the Joint Incident Command Protecting Free Speech and Keeping the Peace in Portland, I activate the Oregon National Guard last night. These are Oregonians like you and me who have volunteered their time and taken leave from their jobs and their families to keep the streets of Portland safe. For weeks, Oregonians have called for an end to the violence. I will continue to do everything in my power to keep the peace in Portland and make sure that people can make their voices heard safely. Well, it's too little too late, but I'm heartened to hear the governor actually speak to the violence that has been the case in Portland for many, many 
many weeks. And I appreciate, too, the distinction between those who are engaged in peaceful protest and demonstration as opposed to those uh, engaged in acts of violence. Well, as the sun rose uh, the morning after the election, it became apparent the winner of the 2020 presidential campaign might be decided only after a long legal battle involving lawsuits and other demands by both presidential campaigns. And while Democratic nominee Joe Biden took wins in two crucial swing states, Michigan and Wisconsin, President Trump's team, they demanded a recount in Wisconsin and filed suit in Michigan, Georgia, Nevada and one other state. As of late Wednesday afternoon, uh, Biden had uh, 264 electoral votes, six shy of the 270 votes needed to win, meaning any change could be critical in determining who wins the presidency. Meanwhile, the Biden campaign launched a fight fund designed to ensure votes are properly counted. Pennsylvania, another hotly contested state, also faced a lawsuit from the Trump 2020 campaign with Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani joining the president's legal team in Philadelphia and citing claims of massive cheating. Pennsylvania and North Carolina had last minute Supreme Court decisions that allowed each to extend the deadline for when officials received their ballots. That could mean that official tallies for those states won't be known until Friday for Pennsylvania and November 12th for North Carolina. The campaign is suing to overturn the 4-4 decision, allowing Pennsylvania to maintain its ballot extension. In other developments, Biden's 72 million votes surpass Obama's. 2008 mark, and Trump's count is close behind. So this was a record-breaking um, election. Uh, McEnany, White House spokesperson, said Trump's path to 270, the electoral votes, runs through Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Georgia. Ben Shapiro says the 2020 election's one big message, voters refuse to accept the woke media's narrative on race. And Biden predicts victory, says he'll govern as an American president. And his one electoral vote from Nebraska, a district in Nebraska, could prove pivotal to his White House bid. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue to take a look at post-election news. We'll also anticipate a conversation with Dr. Jay Richards, author, co-author, I should say, of The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. Must-read book for this season. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, anticipating a conversation with Dr. Jay Richards in our next several sessions. Uh, he is the co-author of The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. Excellent book. Looking forward to that conversation. Well, at least nine arrests were made in Portland on Wednesday night after authorities declared that a downtown protest had been had become rather a riot. In New York City, demonstrators set fires. They clashed with police in another election uh, protest um, arrests reported. Philadelphia and Minneapolis are among cities uh, seeing post-election unrest. And protesters in Minneapolis carried an America is over banner. Fourteen were arrested after setting off fireworks. America is over, their banner read. North Carolina protests were arrested after fireworks were thrown in Raleigh on election night. Well, Laura Ingram says the GOP outperformed expectations on election night while pollsters crashed spectacularly. Republicans were on track to retain key Senate seats on Wednesday night, outperforming the projections of the fat cat consultants and pollsters who cashed in, yet crashed spectacularly, she said, speaking to her viewers. Uh, They should go into another line of work, and we should not give so much uh, attention to them the day uh, after this election. Well, defying all odds, GOP senators swatted down well-funded challengers in Texas, Iowa, South Carolina, Kansas, Montana, and Maine on Tuesday night. 
narrowing Democrats' path to flip the Senate and dashing any hopes for a blue wave. In one major victory, Senator Lindsey Graham fended off a serious scare from Democrat Jamie Harrison, who raised a record total of $107.6 million to challenge the powerful Judicial Committee chairman. Well, during his victory speech, he took aim at the liberal donors from out of state who were banking on a GOP defeat. Well, a house of cards, Pelosi um, is going to have a hard time becoming speaker. Some are speculating, given the uh, failure uh, to increase the numbers in the House and the loss of seats. And locked out of uh, Detroit, Republican vote challengers are furious over their lack of access. Uh, Colorado passed a resolution to throw the state's electoral votes to the popular vote winner. And Oregon uh, became the first state to decriminalize hard drugs like heroin and cocaine. Another mark on our reputation. Ballots uh, taken from mailboxes in Arizona were found by a a farm worker, officials say. And Hollywood starts to get excited as Biden picks up battleground states, but they've expressed disappointment over the losses in the Senate. Well, Trump has dispatched lawyers to question several state results. Both Biden and Trump are mobilizing legal teams. Kimberly Strassel points out the math required to get Wisconsin to an 89 percent turnaround rate. And she later noted seven Milwaukee um, wards report more than more 2020 presidential votes than registered voters. I'm not sure how you do the math. Uh, Biden nets 146,000 votes in that city. Michigan Senate hopeful John James accused officials of election interference, and they did discover problems with Trump votes in Michigan going to Biden. Having been through the 2000 controversy, Joe Lieberman gives his advice to candidates in the Wall Street Journal. Well, Trump is closing in on Arizona. He holds a thin uh, lead in Georgia, but that, of course, could change even as I speak. He says um, he stays alive for another day. And Democrats call on Twitter to suspend Trump's account. Shocking to see members of the major political party overtly seeking to have the other side censored. And Republicans have plenty to cheer about, even if they lose the presidential race. More than 20 Republican women are headed to the House. A video of Susan Collins dancing to still the one in the parking lot. Again, my advice earlier this uh, season, politicians should not dance unless they've been trained by Juilliard. And remember when Democrats were thinking they might finish 2020 with 60 Senate seats? Well, not so much. Michael Bloomberg blew through $100 million in his failed attempt to deliver Texas and Ohio. Well, Democrats are shocked to see their House seats shrink. They believed that they'd expand their power by as many as 15 seats. But instead, the GOP flipped several seats. Republicans even picked up a pair of seats in California. Biden's fossil fuel comments cost a Democrat her seat in New Mexico. Well, the Washington Post writer is miserable because a President Biden will be kept uh, under wraps by uh, re-electing Mitch McConnell. I mean, that's the consequence of an election. People choose who they want to represent them. For months, we've been contemplating a world in which Biden wins the White House and Democrats narrowly take control of the Senate. We asked ourselves if they should get rid of the filibuster. Yes, they should. Or grant statehood to the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. Also, yes. But we didn't spend nearly enough time contemplating what it now looks like will be the reality. A Democratic president and a Republican Senate. End quote. California reject Californians, I should say, rejected racial quotas. John Sexton writing on the uh, uh, the effort. In case you missed it, Prop 16 was designed to remove a passage from the state constitution, which reads the state shall not discriminate against or grant preferential treatment to any individual or group on the basis of race, sex, color, ethnicity or national origin in the operation of public employment, public education or public uh, contracting. 
Another story points out, whenever the question of preferential treatment is fairly presented to the public, it is rejected decisively and by all racial and ethnic groups. And rightly so. Asian Americans know that they are the frequent victims of university admission preferences. Latinos know that they are frequently the victims of government contracting preferences. And the group that are ostensibly benefited frequently are hurt by them, too, because of the well-documented mismatch effects. It's simple and should not be hard to understand or appreciate. Americans of all backgrounds oppose discrimination. A couple of other ballot measures in California went right uh, as well. You can read about that in National Review. Well, some thugs traveled um, down a road in Colorado chanting, no USA at all. You can see video on the mob of the mob rather on Twitter. Mayhem also um, uh, is also back on the menu in New York. Portland uh, wants to play too, but they had a, uh, to face the National Guard. A woman was arrested for spitting in the face of a police officer elsewhere as well. Well, Portland voters, as I'm hearing national news coverage repeat over and over again out of disbelief, um, voted to pr- approve uh, the free universal preschool. And with that fine gift comes the highest tax in the nation. Have, for- have fun, Portland residents. Uh, you may or may not be able to um, afford living here. Well, in the, the latest batch, Trump gets a share of votes he needs to reclaim Arizona, but the next round of ballots present new challenges as the runoff continues, or at least the countoff. Trump sues uh, four states, laying the groundwork for a contested outcome. He also won the highest share of non-white votes of any Republican since 1960, and Trump performed historically well with Jewish voters. Frank Lunds points out that election results are devastating for the polling industry. Nancy Pelosi is pretty silent on House losses in her Biden victory memo to fellow Democrats. Her seat as the speaker may be somewhat uh, tenuous. Mitch McConnell calls for a coronavirus package before the end of the year. There's no political reason not to do it. And Michael Bloomberg's plan to help Biden win swing states was a $100 million bust. Pennsylvania AG Josh Shapiro points out that uh, he, by the way, stated Trump is going to lose. He directed voters who needed assistance to the Democrat helpline trying to help the outcome. Well, the National Guard was called into Portland in widespread violence after the election. Portland voted to create a community-run police oversight board. And Kim Fox, Cook County's questionable state's attorney, defeated her Republican challenger. Illinois voters rejected the governor's push to hike taxes on the rich. And ISIS says it executed the Vienna rampage. We haven't heard a lot about it because of our election coverage, but uh, many killed and injured there. The French military killed 50 jihadist fighters and detained four in a strike in Mali. And Saudi Arabia plans to remove key restrictions on migrant laborers. Well, the U.S. passed the 100,000 single-day case count, according uh, to health officials, and a new item on your medical bill, the COVID fee. We may talk about that sometime next week. Well, a Kentucky town elected a French bulldog as they, their mayor. A Wilbur Beast declared a landslide victory over other candidates, tallying 13,000 out of 22,000 votes cast, making him the most popular dog in the history of the town of Rabbit Hash. The incumbent mayor, a rescued pit bull called um, Brenneth Palto, you know, kind of a play on the name, who held the position since 2017, once received or rather only received 292 votes. Well, policy, either Trump or Biden will win, but our deepest problems will remain. We tend to look at forms of breakdown in our society in terms of what they produce, anger, cynicism, a rejection of tradition, but we would be wise to also consider what they implicitly demand and yearn for. 
responsibility, integrity, and above all, solidarity. Our national politics need these too, but they will come from below, from local and state government, where it's harder to avoid dealing with concrete problems, and from civil society, where we encounter one another on a personal level. We can't stand with our arms folded and hope we finally elected the people who will deliver them. They have to begin with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Dr. J. Richards, The Price of Panic. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, we are in the midst of a global pandemic, but what do we actually know about the pandemic and have the decisions that have been made about how to respond, have they been correct? Have they been scientifically sound? And how are decisions being made? Well, my next guest is the co-author of a very important book, The Price of Panic. How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. Now, the human cost of the emergency response to COVID-19 has far outweighed the benefits. Uh, That's the sobering verdict of this um, book. And the trio of scholars, a biologist, uh, Douglas Axe, a statistician, William Briggs, and a philosopher, my next guest, Jay Richards, in this comprehensive assessment of the worst panic-induced disaster in history. Once again, the book is titled The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. Now, for the first time in history, they point out, the world shut itself down by choice, all for fear of a virus, COVID-19. It wasn't well understood. The government, with the support of most Americans, ordered the closure of tens of thousands of small businesses, many of them never to return. And almost every school and college in the country sent its students home to finish the school year in front of a computer. Churches canceled worship services. Social distancing went from a non-word to a moral obligation overnight. Moral preening on social media achieved ever new heights. Well, that is the... uh, scope of the book we're going to review. And uh, as you might recall, uh, Dr. Richards was a guest with us about a week or so ago, and I invited him back to talk more fully about the book. Uh, Jay Richards is a research assistant professor in the Bush School of Business at the Catholic University of America. He's a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute, co-author of The Privileged Planet, How Our Place in the Cosmos is Designed for Discovery, and author of Money, Greed, and God. He joins us today to talk about his latest collaboration, The Price of Panic. Thank you so much for joining us once again today. Georgine, thanks for having me back. My pleasure. You know, this is such an important book because it helps those of us who are watching the experts and those in positions of authority, policymakers, politicians, Mm -hmm. and the like, make decisions that conflict with other decisions uh, that don't seem to add up, but we don't really know how to ask the right questions or where to go for the right answers. And this collaboration really does raise important questions that many of us have been asking and longing for some clear-headed answers to. Talk a little bit about this collaboration and how the three of you decided it was time to take on uh, the policy decisions and the cost of those policy decisions uh, following COVID-19? Well, it it was actually in March when we realized that uh, speculative computer models were being essentially used as the evidence to justify shutting down the world. Uh, Imperial College London uh, computer model in late March predicted that the infection fatality rate of the bug was going to be 3.4%. That's where we got this number, about 2.2 million Americans dead, unless we shut everything down. It came from this predictive model. And predictive models are only as good as the assumptions that are plugged into them. They're not by themselves evidence. And so if you have a reason to think the assumptions of the model are wrong, well, then you have good reason to think the conclusions are going to be wrong. If they say garbage in, garbage out. 
uh, the three of us, one, the statistician, and, and then Doug X, my biologist colleague, and I all know something about statistical modeling. So I honestly think that's the thing that led us to worry right from the beginning. That's why we actually started writing a book on April the 1st. And sure enough, within a couple of weeks, we found out that that Imperial College London model was just completely useless. It was written in an old language computer language called Fortran. It had all sorts of bugs in it. And the assumption that infection fatality rate of this, the virus was 3.4%. As soon as we got evidence, we realized, okay, that's, that's wrong probably by an order of magnitude. Our estimate is that at most, the infection fatality rate is about 0.26% and probably lower than that. So they had overestimated it by about 14 times. And so that's where we got the kind of panic and this idea that a speculative model in the ear of a few people like the Director General of the World Health Organization and two or three public health officials in the U.S. government could essentially orchestrate a global shutdown is just something that we, we found terrifying. And so in the book, you know, we're not really surprised, but we suspected the response would end up being doing more damage than the coronavirus itself. And we think we've, we've made a pretty strong case that, unfortunately, the, the cure has been worse than the disease. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think for the average American, as we've been looking looking on and trying to follow what the experts and politicians have been telling us, uh, we have questions. But when we raise questions or question some of the decisions that have been made, um, we're told that we're anti-science, that we need to rely mm-hmm. on the experts. And while we would agree that we want people who who are, are expert in their field and we want the, the science to guide us, we can't have much confidence in the science because, quite frankly, what we're hearing is a series of contradictory um, reports and interpretations that uh, conflict as well. Uh, So where do we begin? Uh, Maybe maybe we begin by asking where the pandemic started, who started it, and and as you've pointed out, how we arrived at the panic, at least initially, uh, that sent us all home from our offices and from our, our school desks. Well, it was essentially, the funny thing is, is that if you knew where to look, you, you knew that uh, scientists were in no agreement whatsoever about this. There are public health officials uh, at Stanford Medical School and Oxford and Harvard and Yale that said, look, there's no, there's no testing uh, that's been done of this, this population-wide lockdown. And in fact, the World Health Organization itself in 2019 had reported, had done, surveyed all the studies that were relevant at the time and said, actually, there's no good evidence for lockdowns. But in March, we got we were sort of told by the media that this is the, the sort of official take on these things, and I think that's what we need to realize uh, is that if you're just you, you think okay, I don't I don't know anything about the science, and that's going to be true for most of us. Think about okay, where are you getting your information? If you're just getting your information from uh, CNN or from your your Twitter newsfeed, at least be aware of that. So you know there was a poll in in July that asked Americans, okay, what do you think the the percentage of Americans that died from COVID nineteen is? And the average American guessed nine percent. Well, if you actually just went to the CDC website and actually just did a little addition and, and, and division, you'd discover that the number is actually 0.06%. So the average American thinks it's 150 times more deadly than it is. Well, we're not reading science journals. That's not where we've gotten this impression. We've gotten it overwhelmingly from the media. And I think we has got to be an opportunity for us to realize how much the media mediates 
the information that supposedly comes from scientists or from other experts. In fact, we're not actually hearing from the experts. We're hearing it uh, from media talking heads who very often are 27-year-olds with journalism degrees that actually have no idea what they're talking about. I hate to say it, but, you know, don't react uh, immediately on these sorts of things if you're not getting some kind of access uh, to somebody other than the media mediators. That's what the word means. Media means is they come between us. And we honestly think that it, it's, it's frankly the media um, panic porn is what we call it, then being mm. amplified by the social media played the lion's share of the role in this. Yeah, there are a few government officials and, and scientific officials that were saying certain things, but the, there was a major debate going on among the actual scientists. So most of the panic, I think it has to be laid at the feet of, of the media. Well, that's that's absolutely true. In fact, we can cite cases in which some of those genuine experts attempted to weigh in on the subject and were either censored or discredited uh, to discourage people from considering any other alternative or to even acknowledge that among scientists there was not a consensus as to not only what the problem was, but what the solution might be. No, that's exactly right. I mean, that's what was so distressing. And we have a major section of the book just talking about that. But, you know, most of us that were really trying to pay attention knew there'd be physicians or scientists that would say something on Twitter or Facebook and, or, or YouTube, a video interview on YouTube and from a genuine expert uh, that would just suddenly be pulled down. That's what made this thing in some ways so, so creepy, honestly, is that you had the, the big tech, essentially, you had social media networks becoming arbiters of a scientific debate so that you could have an epidemiologist arguing with another epidemiologist and they would favor one over the other. And the general rule was always that they would favor the person who had a sort of government official status. So if it's a, a person, a scientist working for the government or especially for the World Health Organization, then the media and social media giants would treat them as if they were essentially infallible oracles that, that were sort of bequeathed the authority to speak on behalf of science. But that's not how this works. It's not like if you happen to work for the government of the World Health Organization, you've sort of won the gold medal of science or something like that. It doesn't make you more credible than an epidemiologist at Stanford Medical School or something like that. But that overwhelmingly, that was the rule that they used. Well, is this a science official or is this just some flunky teaching at Harvard University? I mean, with that's the literally PhD. how it often went. <laughs> yeah, with a PhD in a relevant field. Absolutely bizarre. We've got to get over this idea that just because you're a public health official doesn't mean that you have any more knowledge or smarts on the subject than some other scientist that's independent. In fact, if anything, trust the independent scientist because he or she does not have the same incentives to terrify. If you're working for the government, your incentive is going to be sort of overshoot the estimate. If you, have, you know, if you had to predict and you say, well, a million people die and only a thousand die, then you can say, well, good thing we responded. But if you say, well, 10 people are going to die and a thousand people die, then you're looking for a jo another job. And so if anything, government public health officials have an incentive to overshoot the dangers and to overshoot the risk. And so that's why I think actually independent scientists outside government should, if anything, be given more credibility on these things. We're talking about a very important book, The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. Dr. Jay Richards is my guest. We need to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Jay Richards. He is the co-author of The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. One of the things that seems to have been turned on its head is the notion of scientific debate, that if someone with a science background, and particularly if they're connected with the government, that the notion that there would be disagreement among experts um, has simply been poo-pooed as as uh, impossible. So that when you raise questions about what experts are saying, even if they're saying two different things, you're discouraged from even considering the possibility that there's uncertainty surrounding this pandemic. Yeah, I mean, what's so, what's so strange about it is that most of us that were paying attention, at least in March or April, will remember that we were being told two different things about, say, masks, for instance. We all remember initially we were told, okay, masks don't do any good for the general public. Uh, don't don't buy masks, don't wear them, uh, because uh, healthcare workers need them. Well, that was a kind of a strange thing to say. If they don't work, why would healthcare workers need them? And then within a few weeks, right, we were told, no, you absolutely, you really need to wear a mask. And now in many places, we're under a mask mandate. And very often it was the same person telling mm-hmm. us two different things. I mean, the reality is that if you actually look at the scientific research on masks, it is complicated. There's so many ways to do it wrong. Many things that we think of as masks aren't really masks or they're not respirators. And so that was the kind of, if you were to look at the science and say, okay, I could see why they'd say maybe the general public, it's not going to likely do you any good because you don't have to necessarily wear a mask properly. They could have said that. Instead, they were essentially you know, telling us from the very beginning, well, you shouldn't wear it because the other people need it. And then all of a sudden, they, they flip-flopped on it. And so in some ways, they kind of discredited themselves, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, on almost all these things, the issues are just complicated. And when it came especially to the coronavirus, there was a bunch of stuff we simply didn't know at the beginning. We didn't know how dangerous it was going to be. We, we knew it came from China, but, you know, China wasn't giving us good information on it. They were covering things up. And then the World Health Organization for about five weeks carried water for the, the authorities in Beijing. And so it made sense that maybe in March, you know, I tend to be forgiving of public health officials and government officials early on that didn't mm-hmm. quite know what we were dealing with. What's strange, though, is that months on here, I mean, we're in October now that we're still acting like we don't know anything about this coronavirus. And we know for a fact that it's about a thousand times more dangerous to people over 70 than it is to the young. And yet we're still talking about these kind of general population-wide lockdowns rather than focus protection, in which we focus on the people that are most at risk. And then we let people that are not at much risk get back with their lives. That's what's sort of weird. It's like the, the whole public health apparatus and uh, forces of government having committed to population-wide lockdowns now don't want to admit that, well, maybe those weren't the greatest idea. And so it, it just seems to be a kind of rolling barrage of lockdowns and threats of lockdowns, which continues, I think, to do to far more damage. It will ultimately do more damage both in lives and fortune than I think the coronavirus itself does. Mm. One of the chapters of the, the book, The Price of Panic, is on how the virus spread. And again, we had different um, experts telling us different things about that. The masks were supposed to help. We needed to be careful about mm-hmm. surfaces and so on. Um, how how did and how does the virus spread? And what's the evolution of our understanding of that? And are we have we settled at a place where experts, in quotes, and scientists are at mm-hmm. least in agreement on that uh, factor, how it spreads? No, not at all. And in fact, I, I it's depressing to have to report this, but when we went to work on the book, there have been over a million 
studies done on influenza, kind of, you know, it's a, a mm-hmm. different kind of virus, but a respiratory virus, a million studies done over the decades. And we're still a bunch of stuff that we don't know. And so needless to say, there's still a lot of stuff we don't know about the coronavirus. But I can say the assumption at the beginning was that it was mainly spread either by surfaces or by essentially large particles. So sort of coughing or sneezing, you know, where you have a whole blob of spit, I'd say, but that's the, that was what we thought. And so that was the idea about the six-foot rule, wearing surgical masks that could block that sort of thing. Well, the evidence has been growing that it's actually primarily passed by aerosols. In other words, by the very fine particulate sort of, you know, bit, tiny bits of moisture that just come out of our lungs when we're breathing. So if you're sick and asymptomatic, even if you're wearing uh, a surgical mask, it comes out of your breath like smoke and passes through those surgical masks like smoke. And so what that means is that the six foot rule and things like that, the, the surgical masks don't end up making much difference because it's probably passed by aerosols. And the World Health Organization now just in the last month um, and the CDC have, have come around and saying, okay, we think it may be being spread by aerosols. Now that could be, that'd be terrible news if this were something like Ebola, because it would basically mean there's almost no way to avoid it. The reality is at the same time that we've learned it's being passed by aerosol, we've also discovered that the the coronavirus for the vast majority of the population is not very dangerous. In fact, if you're under 25 years old, you're much more at risk actually of dying from the flu than the coronavirus. If you're older, and especially if you have additional forms of sickness, type 2 diabetes, uh, heart disease, and things like that, then you're genuinely at risk. But for most of the population, it turns out it's just much, much less risky than we originally thought. So does that make the case for the the type of isolation that we've uh, been seeing where people are uh, called upon to um, separate themselves from one another, to uh, leave their places of business, to pull kids out of school? Is it has what you've just described, has that made the case for the kind of social isolation that has been so costly? Well, yeah, that, that's the problem is that, okay, maybe that's, if everyone was equally at risk uh, of the virus. And it would make sense you'd have a, you know, okay, do, then we need a strategy that focuses on the entire population. The problem is that any response is going to, there's going to be cost. And so if you tell everybody they can't go to school or can't go to work, there's going to be major costs on the other side. And so that's why you want to make sure you get the details right. Because as it is, um, general population-wide lockdowns, clearing out all um, uh, basically scheduled procedures in hospitals like we did for several months. There are massive costs on the other side. We think about 80,000 cancer screenings may have been missed just in that first three months of the lockdown. In other words, cancers that people had that would normally have been caught by a normal kind of doctor, uh, you know, appointment got missed, which means that there could be tens of thousands of additional deaths from cancer just from the lockdown. So that's the, that's the cost that's borne if you lock everyone down. And so that's why you want to know, okay, who's really at risk? And then you, you do quarantines. What quarantines are, that's what we've been doing for hundreds of years. People that we know are sick and symptomatic, they're quarantined. And then you do your best to isolate and to protect the people that are really at risk. But you don't try to lock down the entire population. Not only does that lock everyone inside together, but it ends up shutting people off from other things that they're doing. That has all these massive knock-on costs, which is what many of us are experiencing, unfortunately. 
Now, early on, we were told that the quarantine was designed to flatten the curve so that the healthcare system mm-hmm. would not be overwhelmed. And I think most people thought that sounded reasonable because we weren't sure how uh, how serious this was going to be, and we didn't want healthcare providers to be overwhelmed. That's faded into the background. In fact, no one ever talks mm-hmm. about flattening the curve any longer, and so there's a lot of confusion around all of that. Was it reasonable given what we at least partially know about uh, COVID-19. Was it reasonable, at least initially, to have uh, shut things down with the idea that it was temporary until we could make sure the healthcare system could could handle what they were telling us were going to be large numbers of people in need of serious medical attention? It made sense at the time. So the basic idea, if you if people remember the curves, is that you had this big, mm-hmm. tall uh, you know, sort of skinny curve. And so basically that was a curve that, uh, in which the, basically without the protective measures, more, so many people would get sick that we would outstrip the healthcare system. And so there'd be all these excess deaths. In other words, people that died that could have been saved if there had been a hospital bed or something like that. And so that, you know, th- there was a sort of logic to that, that because it was based on sound epidemiology. The assumption was that, look, everybody that's going to catch this is eventually going to catch it. We can't prevent that. It's the same area under both curves, but we can at least slow down the spread just a little bit uh, so that we don't outstrip our hospital capacity. But remember, that was supposed to last, you know, the White House called it 15 days to slow Mm -hmm. the spread. But that immediately transitioned into a campaign in which we're literally trying to prevent the spread indefinitely. Well, you know, the, the original assumption of the flattening the curve diagram was that actually you can't do that. You might be able to slow it down a little bit, but you can't actually prevent it. Well, we're now about five or six months into this real delusion that somehow we're going to be able to literally prevent this from happening. And so that's why even if you look at the countries that had really hard lockdowns, uh, they still have increases in cases at different times. And you have countries like Sweden uh, that didn't have lockdowns at all that are more or less returning to normal. This this is idea that we can kind of indefinitely control the spread of the virus in this way. That that was a delusion, even though I do think there's a grace period there for a couple of weeks in March for the idea of the flattening the curve. The problem is, is that we didn't say, OK, well, that okay, the hospitals didn't get overrun, so let's return things to normal. We didn't do that. And part of that is I think once once government gets moving and starts issuing mandates and exercising power, it has a very hard time sort of letting off the control yes. once once the coast is cleared. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We're talking with Dr. Jay Richards. He's a co-author of The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. I think many of us can see that right now as we observe what's uh, what's happened and what's going to happen. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing a conversation with Dr. Jay Richards. He is the co-author of The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. From my um, uh, standpoint, this is one of the most important books of the year, given the fact that we are still in quarantine and struggle to understand what this pandemic is all about and whether or not the responses that we've seen from uh, bureaucrats and politicians is the right approach to deal not only with the with COVID-19, the virus, but with the uh, fallout, the cost of uh, in human lives, dollars, livelihoods, and so on, uh, given the uh, the quarantine that we've been called to. 
Well, let me ask you, how did science bureaucrats that were relying on murky data, and I'm not sure scientists would admit that in the, in the public sphere mm-hmm. anyway, and speculative computer models, how did they gain the power uh, to shut down the global economy? Obviously, politicians are listening to them, but where did they get the, uh, the, the power and influence to move countries in this direction? Well, I would say it's the it's the way in which the public health apparatus is actually developed in the 20th century. And so, um, of course, there's, there's nothing wrong with uh, major politicians having health advisors that can tell them these sorts of things. But between the World Health Organization, uh, which is that's the, that's the UN's arm, public health arm, effectively, it's an arm of the of the UN. And then entities like the, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, you have a, essentially a public health bureaucracy that emerged both globally with, the, with WHO and then in most countries. Almost every country has something like the CDC. Um, and, and it's that. And then they gain a kind of an official status. And then they become the sort of sole arbiters that are translating science to politicians. That's, that was really the danger. President Trump talking to the press on April the 8th, it was asked, okay, so why did you advise lockdowns, at least initially? And he said, well, two very smart people came into my office and they said, Mr. President, 2.2 million people are going to die if we don't shut down the country. Well, that 2.2 million number, that didn't come from any scientific evidence. That came from this computer model. Mm -hmm. Now, if the president had access to other scientists that were following this, he'd have said, no, we don't have any reason to think that number is true. But as it was, you have these public health officials and they have exclusive access to politicians, that's how something like this can happen. That's why we, we talk about the tyranny of experts. The problem isn't expertise or having scientific experts that advise presidents and prime ministers. The problem is when they get this kind of status of an infallible oracle in which they uh, deign to speak for scientists and science as a whole, and then politicians in some ways sort of have no choice. Now, the president actually and starting in the summer, he realized this. He realized, okay, wait, uh, the guys that are advising me don't necessarily know all the details of the science. So the president brought Dr. Scott Atlas from Stanford Medical School out. And so he now ha- he realized that after the fact that, oh, actually, science doesn't speak with one voice. And we think to prevent this from happening again, we think major political leaders, they need access to a group of scientists and experts on these things that are outside mm-hmm. the government bureaucracy so that they're genuinely independent. And don't, there's, no, there's no cost. It's not like they risk their jobs by telling the president exactly what they think. And it, unfortunately, the first time around, that's not what President Trump, that's not what most other prime ministers and presidents in other countries had. They had this kind of public health bureaucracy, which was advising them. Well, we know that uh, lockdowns were imposed on most Americans, uh, primarily through uh, state governments. Did the lockdowns work? If by work, I mean we reduce the number of and the spread of COVID-19. Did they work favorably, even though they weren't necessary? Uh, they didn't necessarily um, uh, do what we hoped they would do. Did they work in some way that we can say, well, it was worth it? Well, that's what we were hoping to find. We were hoping to look at this and say, okay, well, the, the, the cost of the government locking things down, the state government's locking things down was really too high, but at least there was some benefit. But what, so we mapped all the U.S. states and we did the same thing with all the countries. 
uh, we can compare the ones that had lockdowns with those that didn't and with those that, you know, did something in the middle. And then we know the actual dates when state governments imposed these lockdowns. And so you can sort of picture, you can look at the case curves and you can look at the death and hospitalization curves in those different states. And if the lockdowns made a difference, you should expect that there'll be a clear signal in the curve, right? So essentially mm-hmm. the curves will start to bend down about 10 days after the government lockdown goes into effect. So that's about how long it would take for the for it to show up in the records. And so we did that in the book. And there's a couple of pages of diagrams. And what we found is that there is no discernible effect at all from the government lockdown. So whatever benefits there were probably happened voluntarily. The second people started hearing about this virus, we started you know, based on our, our personal situation, we started doing things to protect ourselves and our loved ones. And then the government imposed lockdowns. I hate to say it, but they looked like they were all pain and no gain. That's honestly, Georgine, that's not what we wanted to discover, but that, that's what the data seemed to suggest. Mm-hmm. Well, then that, that raises the question of the human cost. Uh, what's going to be and what has been the cost in lives, in dollars, in livelihoods, and so on? Let's talk first about the human cost of complying with what the government, relying on uh, primarily bureaucratic experts, has said is in our best interest to prevent large-scale deaths. What has been the human cost to our willingly complying with what we're being told? Well, we can count it in terms of dollars. If it's in dollars, it's about a trillion dollars a month for the lockdowns. But of course, the dollars isn't what matters. The trillion dollars a month for the economy is jobs and well-being and school lunches and all the things we need. We knew that by end of May, the lockdowns cost about 41 million jobs or 41 million new jobless claims. Uh, We estimate there will be about 75,000 excess deaths of despair in 2020. That's deaths from suicide and drug and alcohol overdoses. So these are excess deaths of despair of about 75,000. As I mentioned earlier, probably about 80,000 missed cancer screenings just in that first three months of the lockdowns. And that's just cancer. Now you add, of course, other diseases that will will be uh, screened. You very quickly end up, unfortunately, with more deaths caused from the lockdowns then are attributed to the coronavirus itself. And that's without getting into the obvious cost of loss of our freedom, the loss of a freedom to worship and to gather together, the loss of educational opportunities for children, the kind of countless losses that you can't really measure. Just in terms of lives and deaths, we think the lockdowns themselves will have cost more lives than the coronavirus. More lives will be lost than the coronavirus took our efforts to exactly. prevent its spread. I mean, that's very, that's staggering and it's very sobering mm. to consider, you know, we didn't get a lot of things right and we're still not getting some things, <laughs> um, some things right. Well, who, who did get it right? Can you point to an area, uh, a, a perspective where it was uh, rightly interpreted and they got it right? Yes. In fact, there are states that we think got it right. We think Florida probably did as well as anyone could. You can't always compare states and countries because there's so much variation in the population and location, of course. But Florida, Governor DeSantis, he got information from scientists in in um, in Asia and in Europe and figured out very quickly, okay, elderly, especially in nursing homes, are really at risk. And so he very quickly opened up the, most of the economy in Florida, but really focused protection uh, on the nursing homes. And that was a really smart thing to do. I can remember for months he weathered attacks from the media that he was going to let people die and all this stuff, but he toughened it out. The same thing in Sweden. I mean, who would have guessed 
in 2019, if you told me, okay, there's going to be this globalist push for governments to force populations to lock down, and Sweden, of all countries, will resist it. I would never <laughs> have guessed that. But they did. The one thing they, they didn't do is they didn't focus carefully on the nursing homes. And so if you look at a lot of the deaths they suffered in Sweden, unfortunately, were nursing homes. And so I would say, do what Sweden did, but focus from the very beginning on nursing homes. That's probably the best thing that you can do. It's the thing in which you get the most benefit with the lowest cost. Once again, we're talking about the book, The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. My guest is the co-author of the book, Dr. Jay Richards, along with Douglas Axe and William uh, Briggs. Uh, Just an excellent read, and I would encourage all of us to pick it up and read through to better understand uh, where we stand today, what the future might look like, and the kinds of lessons that uh, we have learned and need to learn as a result of this quarantine and pandemic. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back to wrap things up with our guest in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Jay Richards, who is the co-author of The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. Well, I mentioned just before the break that um, there are lessons to be learned. And my first question is, are you optimistic that we're learning, and I'm referring to those in positions of authority, making decisions about uh, whether or not a quarantine, as we've experienced it, will continue into the future, um, or whether or not that was not the right approach. Have we learned lessons that we can apply to the future, and your optimistic will be applied uh, if we find ourselves in similar circumstance in the future? Well, there are lessons at the very least. We now have a lot of information we didn't have nine months ago or mm-hmm. seven months ago, so the evidence is there. I'm, I'm, at the moment, I'm a bit distressed that we don't seem to be learning the lessons. I mean, on the West Coast, certainly in Oregon, in California, it's as if nothing has happened, as if we don't know anything new about uh, about the coronavirus that we knew several months ago. There's talk by major uh, um, political candidates and uh, politicians about additional lockdowns, mm-hmm. additional uh, not quarantines. Lockdowns aren't quarantines. A quarantine is when you isolate someone who's sick from everyone else. What we're talking about is lockdowns that have devastating effects on on, on ordinary life. And so, honestly, it's a the reason we wrote the book is we thought we need okay, kind of one-stop shopping information for people and for politicians and policy advisors to realize okay, the lockdowns are a bad thing. And there are things we can do, but we don't want to do the lockdowns again. At the moment, I feel like it's going to be a long, hard slog persuading people. I'm optimistic that, you know, right when the book came out, Georgine, there was a great Barrington Declaration came out, which is a group of now tens of thousands of scientists around the world saying essentially what we were saying, that, look, we know more about the coronavirus. It's not deadly for most people, uh, you know, uh, except for the elderly and and those in ill health. Um, And what we want to do is do the focused protection. And so in some ways, we felt like we were sort of, uh, you know, lonely voices crying in the wilderness initially. But there's tens of thousands of scientists that have now come out and said this. Um, it's really, I, I think it's quite clear that the science is not simply on the side of the lockdowns. The problem is the media is continuing uh, to silence and to censor this, even with tens of thousands of well-credentialed scientists now on the record calling for focus protection rather than lockdowns. You wouldn't know that if you turned on the TV mm-hmm. and watched MSNBC or, or, or CNN. You'd think that it's, it's just business as usual. And so it's going to take a lot of work, I think, for us to penetrate 
the sources of information that, that most of us use, which is just basically social media and the mainstream media. Yeah, you mentioned the uh, Great Barrington Declaration. I, I'm noting just today I read an article that also pointed out that there's pushback from the John Snow Memorandum saying just the opposite. Mm-hmm. And again, you're not you're not even hearing that the debate is taking place, let alone no. which side of it we should fall on. No, that's exactly right. I mean, the John Snow Declaration was basically an attempt of scientists who wanted to defend the lockdowns, and they have every right to do that, right? They can make that argument. But the idea that most people have is that there isn't actually even a debate on any of these yes. things. Well, the, the John Snow Declaration was it was a kind of last-ditch effort to shore up the case for lockdowns. But the, the interesting thing is, is that even the World Health Organization a year ago told us that there's no good evidence that lockdowns work. And the, if you look at the John Snow Declaration, their justification for lockdowns is, again, this predictions of speculative models. If you assume that lockdowns work and you run a computer model, it lo and behold, you discover that lockdowns work. But of course, this is the same source of information that started the lockdowns in the first place. What we want to do is look at real world evidence mm-hmm. of these things. We don't want to trust these speculative models. And you look at the real world evidence. We know about what the infection fatality rate is. We know the things that work and we now know the things that don't work. And that's the debate we need to be having. Absolutely. You point out that the world will reopen one day and life will go on, but what kind of world will be will it be when it does? It can't be what it was because of what's just happened, but what might we expect? What will our brave new world, uh, our brave new normal uh, look like? Mm. And should we be concerned about the excessive power that some politicians have exercised under this global pandemic um, that they might be loath to uh, to retreat from? Yes, I mean, I think that this is where we end the book is talking yes. about or against the brave new normal, because the reality is, is that we think that a public health emergencies are the perfect tool for tyrants. Now, we're not saying that that's the reason this happened. What we're saying is that uh, public health emergencies are the best possible argument that a tyrant could use to get a population to comply. It'd be one thing to have you know, if your president or your governor tells you, well, you got to stay home for your own good. You just really shouldn't go out. None of us would comply with that. But instead, we've been dealt a kind of moral jujitsu in which our own moral concern is used against us so that we're told, now you need to lock yourself down, not go to work, not go to school, not for your own good, but for the good of other people. You might be carrying this virus unawares and you'll kill somebody. Well, that's using our own concern for each other uh, in some ways against us. And so we honestly think, um, you know, anyone that wants to exercise control over a population, they're going to be looking and saying, you know what, the American public, they comply willingly and with almost no objection if they think they're doing it for other people. And so that's why we honestly expect more public health emergencies in the future. And the reality is we might really have one, right? We might really have something that's as bad as the Spanish flu. We need to be able to use that emergency powers when it's actually needed. Our fear is, of course, that it will just, it's going to become the kind of justification of choice for an increase in state power. And I think that's what we need to look out for. Mm. Well, I would highly recommend that every one of our listeners, first of all, read their Bible and then pick up a copy (laughs) of The Price of Panic, how the tyranny of experts turned a pandemic into a catastrophe because it helps us make sense of what we've been experiencing, what's being suggested for the future, and what we might anticipate being exploited by those who are seeking to control the American population. And again, we're not suggesting, as you uh, don't suggest in the book, that those uh, leaders who are trying to manage all of this are tired 
tyrants, but it certainly does create a uh, an environment in which there is a formula for uh, imposing right. uh, tyrannical uh, views. I want to thank you and your co-authors, Douglas Axe and William Briggs, so much for taking the time early on to prepare this book and to make it available to the general population, because we do need solid information, good understanding about what's happening and uh, the kinds of questions that need to be asked and answered. Um, this, uh, again, is a great resource published by Regnery, and I encourage our uh, our listeners uh, to pick it up. Are you optimistic that when people are better informed that we will uh, force, if you will, our politicians to make better um, decisions about the future? And are you hopeful that a better informed public will result in a better approach to these kinds of issues? Absolutely. That's why we wrote the book. I mean, the reality is that um, it, it only works because most of us are continuing to be terrified. And as soon as we have good information and realize what the real risk is, uh, we think it'll be impossible to maintain this. So that's why we bothered to write the book, honestly. Well, I appreciate that you bothered to write the book. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you, Georgine. Jay Richards, the uh, title of the book, The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe, must read for this season. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. There's a lot going on right now, but I think it's always healthy to look back and see what happened, well, years ago on this very day. So... Taking a look at history, and on this day in history, 1940, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt wins an unprecedented third term in office as he defeats Republican challenger Wendell L. Wilkie. That's why we have term limits for the president these days, not because of the outcome of that election, but the third term. 1935, Parker Brothers begins marketing the board game Monopoly. 1968, on this day in history, Republican Richard M. Nixon wins the presidency, defeating Democratic Vice President Hubert Humphrey and American independent candidate George Wallace. 1974, Democrat Ella Grasso is elected governor of Connecticut, becoming the first woman to win a gubernatorial office without succeeding her husband. 1987, on this day in history, Supreme Court nominee Douglas Ginsburg admits using marijuana several times in the 1960s and 70s calling it a mistake. Ginsburg would end up withdrawing his nomination. Now think about that. That was 1987. Think about where we are today, how many states have legalized marijuana and in the state of Oregon, at least the city of Portland, so much more. 2006, Saddam Hussein is convicted and sentenced by the Iraqi High Tribunal to hang for crimes against humanity. And finally, on this day in history, 2009, a shooting rampage at Fort Hood Army Post in Texas leaves 13 people dead. Major Nadal Hassan, an Army psychiatrist, would be convicted of murder and sentenced to death. Well, the strong performance of Republican congressional candidates may be one of the most unexpected and even shocking outcomes of this election, especially for House Democrats. Not only did the Democrat Party fail to expand its majority by double digits, as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi had been predicting, but they lost a net uh, total of five seats with real possibility of losing another five or six. So much for a blue wave. If anything, this wave was a red wave. Well, even worse for Democrats is that the one leading this red wave were women. The number of female Republican representatives in the House has at least doubled with the addition of 11 members. Representative Elise Stefanek, who helped lead the effort to recruit more women candidates, called it the Night of Republican Women. She added, despite the media and the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee issuing demeaning comments and saying it wasn't possible, look at the outcome. We're going to have 
incredible women who have earned this victory themselves in these districts in the next Congress. Well, Stefanik argued that one of the biggest motivating factors that pushed more Republican women to run was the hubris of the Democrats' identity politics. One interesting theme is my early conversation with these women candidates on the Republican side is that they said the party of Nancy Pelosi does not represent the vast majority of women in America. The Democratic Party does not have a monopoly on women candidates or women voters. Amen to that. Well, also of significance, these wins serve to double the number of pro-life women in the House. The surge of victorious pro-life women candidates in the U.S. House is a stunning blow to Nancy Pelosi and her pro-abortion agenda, asserted um, Marjorie Dannenfelser, president of the Susan B. Anthony list. So far, we have more than double the number of pro-life women in the House with more races to be called. Seven pro-life women candidates flipped pro-abortion Democrat held seats. Will mainstream media pundits celebrate this important increase in the number of women representatives as they did in 2018? Well, given the mainstream media's disdain for Republicans, don't bet on it. Now, again, I'm trying to keep up with what the culture is saying. You can be a biological male and call yourself a woman, and that's acceptable. You can be, um, let's see, you can be liberal uh, and a woman and be celebrated. If you are a conservative and a woman, you will not be celebrated. Uh, those are the, the new rules. But if you happen to be a Caucasian and you want to self-identify as an African-American, well, that somehow is absolutely unacceptable. So trying to keep up with um, what's real and what's not and what's acceptably false is something of a real challenge. Well, good news for Republicans at the state level. Let's say the results were not uh, the seismic shift that Democrats have been hoping for. Some of the notables, Democrats hope to flip 10 of the 59 Republican-controlled state legislatures. Uh, That was also, uh, or rather, there were also 11 governorships contested in the election, and Democrats hope to pick off a couple. In an effort to achieve their goal, they and their uh, super PACs pumped in tens of millions of dollars into state races. As in uh, U.S. Senate races, they got a poor return on that investment. Well, to put it mildly, the Democrats' hopes didn't materialize. In fact, they failed to turn even one state chamber. On the contrary, Republicans flipped two state chambers and one governorship. That also um, gives Republicans two more trifectas, control of the governorship and both legislative houses. Now, The Hill reports that instead of big Democratic gains, early election results appear to show Republicans picked up enough seats to win control of at least two legislative chambers, the New Hampshire State Senate and the Alaska State House, where Republicans appear to be in a position to break a bipartisan coalition that ran the House for the last two years. Now, this is important for redistricting, so that's why the Democrats were so anxious to win a victory in that area. Well, we still don't know who won the 2020 presidential election. We may know by this evening. We may know tomorrow, but more likely it'll be next week, given the legal challenges. But contested voting counts could turn the process of uh, sorting it out into a dragged out legal battle. Well, nevertheless, the result was certainly an upset, especially if you relied on traditional media and polling sources. Well, former Vice President Joe Biden didn't usher in a blue wave to defeat President Donald Trump and Republicans down the ticket. Instead, the election appears to be one of the closest in history. Republicans may well retain the Senate and may actually uh, make up ground in the House of Representatives. Well, the fact that this election turned out to um, come down to the wire is a stunning rebuke of both the mainstream polling industry and the media in general. In fact, the biggest losers, many are saying, are the um, media and pollsters. At 
some point, one wonders what exactly these polls are for. Are they there to bring reliable information to the American electorate or as a mean, uh, means rather for media to wish cast for the success of their preferred party? It seemed that when the polls are wildly off, they are wildly off in one direction. Time and again, we've seen them vastly underestimate the numbers uh, voting on the right as opposed to the left. As Washington Post columnist Henry Olson wrote, those, uh, these polling errors can't simply be swept under the rug. Well, they certainly cannot, but my guess is they will be. And inside elections, uh, as inside elections, Nathan Gonzalez wrote, partisan pollsters um, were wrong, too. Uh, House races that were supposed to be close to leaning uh, or leaning to the Democrats, such as in Texas, 21st and 23rd congressional districts, ended up being comfortable wins for the Republicans. Others that were supposed to tilt in Democrats' favor, such as South Carolina's first, ended up being Republican wins. Every level of the industry, except perhaps the outliers at the Trafalgar Group, has to ask itself what went wrong. Trafalgar, it must be noted, was roundly mocked by journalists and many mainstream election gurus like Nate Silver, uh, the editor of 538. Uh, It turns out that the um, shy Trump voter was absolutely something pollsters missed and the media dismissed. In the world of cancel culture and empowered social justice warriors, is is it any wonder that right-leaning Trump voters are uncomfortable transmitting their views in the public forum. So the biggest losers may not be those whose names appeared on ballots across the country, but pollsters who tried to determine uh, what the outcome ultimately might be. Well, there's tension and division in close relationships following this uh, election. Tribalism, caste systems, if you will, political policies, painful histories that threaten to tear our churches apart. Well, today marks the end of a controversial election, almost. Unfortunately, the controversy will only increase as we rally around ideology rather than caring for and serving one another. But as we begin to feel hopeless, we have to remember the author of hope, our suffering servant, and one deliverer. When politics and ideology become our primary identity, love for fellow believers with a different point of view can grow cold. Instead, we need to identify as Christ followers and members of the family of God, and together, We can await the day when we are united with one voice in worship of our Heavenly Father. We don't have uh, to fear tomorrow when we fix our eyes on Jesus. When we come back, we're going to talk about a test uh, we can apply to ourselves in these challenging times to make sure we're not um, drifting from what our primary commitments are as followers of Jesus. So that's coming up in our final segment for today's program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I've um, joined Bible Study Fellowship. We're studying Genesis this year, and I recently received a copy of a blog by Dr. Daryl Bach. He's with Dallas Theological Seminary, and it was a, a way to test ourselves in these challenging times. Um, that we could be involved culturally while at the same time reflecting the priorities that we find in Scripture that God is calling us to. And he writes this, No one doubts we are living in challenging times, massive cultural change at an exhausting pace, a world full of anger and an array of frustrations, all topped off by a pandemic leaving people to debate the best way to cope with this disruption. Conversations often devolve into arguments. Today's U.S. election only heightens these divisions, and listening often gets cast aside. In this environment, the great commandment to love God and our neighbor often becomes an ethic left for another day and another time. Just as troubling, if not more so, is how believers are treating one another as a result. 
It haunts me, he writes, as it might you, how people who have worshipped in joy next to one another for 20 or 30 years, maybe just a year or weeks, cannot talk rationally with one another because of issues in the public square. Such things ought not be. Our current climate in the U.S. is a litmus test of what really matters to us. Is it our shared faith or something else? These issues are not isolated to one nation, race, or gender either. If we are not vigilant in our pursuit of Christ, we may all be tempted to elevate our own interests above God's clear directives for his people. We know that without God as the foundation, even our closest relationships can crumble. Just as moments, uh, pause, and um, thoughts should should lead us, rather, Uh, To see that in a fallen world, things are often a mess. The ultimate fix is not in politics, but in our faith and the realization that until Jesus returns, we will always be looking for a better day. So just a moment's pause is called for. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 tells us our battle is not against people, flesh and blood, but it is a spiritual struggle against invisible forces with armor that is not determined by circumstances, politics or ideology. That armor is our lived out faith. Righteousness, truth, the gospel, the spirit, the word, and prayer. Our faith protects us from the flaming errors of the evil one. Errors of the evil one. How we live it out relationally matters. The Great Commission reminds us to share the good news of Jesus with others in gentleness, with respect, and speech that is always gracious. Colossians 4 and 1 Peter 3. Two more key texts direct me in this challenging time, and two observations put a check on my responses. Galatians 6.10 appears as the conclusion to Paul's call to love your neighbor. This theme ties back to Jesus' reminder in the parable of the Good Samaritan that we are called to be good neighbors to every human being rather than selective about who we are real neighbors who our real neighbor is. This passage tells us to do good to all, especially those of the faith. Believers share a special bond, and while God calls us to treat everyone well, I should go above and beyond for those who share my faith in Christ. 1 John 4, 7-12 through 12 reminds believers that our love for one another marks us as God's children and should have priority over anything else. That bond is our shared realization that Jesus is the answer to our needs, all of our needs. The text is clear that love is rooted only in our relationship to Him and that love He gives us and other answers Um, other answer is less than Jesus. The ultimate fix is not in politics, but in our faith. Until Jesus returns, we will always be looking for a better day. And here are a few checks that you might find helpful. Recognize that both policies and character matter deeply in our world, and we all make differing judgments about how to prioritize them when they're in conflict. One may lean one way or the other, and each may have good reasons for doing so. Respect and humility suggest we need to appreciate this reality. Be careful not to always elevate these issues to life and death or good and evil when all of us are making judgments about priorities, uh, some, uh, some of which are difficult calls. Run a series of self-examination tests. I quickly tell if I'm listening by whether I am forming a rebuttal while someone is still speaking. I'm listening closely enough when I can repeat what they say in different words and they respond, you heard what I said correctly. What kind of person are we, rebutters or listeners? Listening and understanding is not necessarily agreeing. It's working uh, carefully to appreciate the conversation, whether an agreement or difference. Another self-examining question is, what really defines me, my faith or my politics? 
If it is my politics more than my faith, then perhaps this, the priority is in the wrong place when it comes to Christ's call to love well. This doesn't mean we should avoid politics, but we can engage with Christ as our unifying center while appreciating the challenging judgments we all make. For many of us, current conflict is escalated by political controversy. Our culture divides everyday choices along political lines. We're asked to choose a side, leaving little room for respectful discussion or even the opportunity to ask difficult questions, some of which have merit on both sides. Well, this lack of respect is a sad development. Some controversial issues do force us to weigh decisions. When we weigh controversial issues in relation to loving one another and personal liberty, we can discern when and where a firm stand is required. Other times, a decision has to be made that does involve judgment. As an example of uh, the latter category, BSF is asking class members when they begin to regather to wear masks because of potential health uh, protections and benefits. The rationale for this decision is uh, another kind of litmus test. When, as uh, Christian Love um, has said that uh, what matters is my liberty and not the care of my neighbor, well, the answer is never. Our culture divides everyday choices along political lines, and we're asked to choose a side, leaving little room for respectful discussion. No matter what the future holds, we are in challenging times. But believers have the Spirit of God to overcome whatever goes on in the world. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. We do not live in fear, but we live confidently in the power, the enablement, the love, and self-control that comes only from our faith and the Holy Spirit that lives within us. If we examine ourselves with these perspectives, maybe we even check ourselves and engage in fellowship rooted in the main thing, perhaps by remembering the most important thing that unites us, we'll grow together as we engage one another in love, even with all of our differences. And what a challenge we face as believers. In a matter of days, we're going to hear an announcement saying this individual is going to be the next president of the United States. Some of us will celebrate, others of us will mourn the loss of the uh, candidate that we preferred. But all of us are called upon to put those things in their proper perspective under the sovereignty of God and to move forward as children of God who love one another as only uh, Jesus himself in the spirit that he has given us makes us able and to put these things into their rightful eternal perspective. Well, we're out of time. I want to thank James Vlind for uh, producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office. James and I are taking tomorrow off. We've decided we need <laughs> need a day to just take a deep breath. So that's precisely what we'll do. We'll give you an opportunity to hear a couple of the best interviews we've had this week. Uh, Jay Richards, uh, Dr. Richards, we spoke with earlier today. That entire conversation will be made available, and we're looking forward to that. Uh, and we're also going to give you an opportunity to hear one of the better One of our favorite interviews of the week, Tara and Jeff Madsen, Shrinking the Integrity Gap. So that will be our fare for tomorrow on the program. Hope you enjoy a great weekend. Enjoy tomorrow's program, that you continue to pray for our nation, and that we move forward confident that God is still on his throne and his purposes will not be thwarted by whatever decisions we're making here on earth. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.